This episode was made possible by Private Internet Access. Browse the web safely and anonymously while changing your IP address to almost any country on Earth. Get two months free and prices as low as $3 per month by following my exclusive link below. When you use a public Wi-Fi hotspot, your data is completely unprotected. Hackers and identity thieves can grab anything. Embarrassing photos? Your web history? Start browsing anonymously and only share what you want to share. I actually kind of like this photo. <laughs> Private internet access. It's time to protect your online privacy. On this episode of Meet My Inspiration, I'm talking with Andrew McKenna. Andrew's story is just incredible. He went from being a U.S. federal prosecutor to becoming profoundly addicted to heroin and eventually to a life as a bank robber. He served some tough years in federal prison but came out of it a new man. He turned his life around and is an advocate for people struggling with addiction and mental health issues. He works now as a national keynote speaker, executive speaking coach, and author of Sheer Madness from Federal Prosecutor to Federal Prisoner. And now, please welcome Andrew McKenna. Welcome everyone to Meet My Inspiration. I'm Chris Minion. My guest today is Andrew McKenna. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today on Meet My Inspiration. It's a real pleasure, Chris. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, well, Andrew, let's start at the beginning, I think. Um, where did you grow up and how would you describe your upbringing? I grew up in a little town called Schenectady, New York, which is upstate, uh, close to Albany. Uh, my upbringing was pretty normal you know, whatever normal means. Um, my parents were together. Um, the youngest of four, um, you know, somewhat middle class, I guess, in terms of economics. My father was a, a college professor. My mom was a school teacher and it was fairly normal. After high school, I think you, you entered into the military, I think the Air Force, and then eventually into the Marine Corps, correct? Correct. And, and, you know, high school was a sort of a, uh, a real turning point for me. Um, from like a very young age, uh, I experienced depression and anxiety. Uh, it was never really pinpointed or identified. Mm. Um, and so um, I joined the Air Force. I didn't finish high school. I dropped out in the 11th grade. Mm. And it was almost like, you know, run for the hills. I had to do something different at really a young age, at, you know, 14, 15, um, I started, you know, I mentioned the depression, the anxiety, I started to self-medicate uh, with alcohol and pot and oh. stuff like that. So, you know, what the, age, the at, whole sorry, thing, Andrew, but at, at what age did the drinking and smoking pot begin? Um, it's probably, you know, between 13 and 14 years old. Oh. Um, and it started very innocently, I hung out with the guys that were a couple of years older than me. We were all athletes and, um, and, you know, the first beer that I had, Chris, I kind of, it brought my anxiety levels down and I could, I could kind of function and same with wow. the pot. Yeah. Just immediately. Yeah. Immediately. Like the first, like I remember the first beer I ever drank, you know, at, at a buddy's house with like three or four guys over as I said, they were a couple of years older than me, but I was on their sports teams. And man, it was like, you know, it was like I, I found the answer to my insecurities and anxiety, feeling less than all those things. Um, it sounded like you had a pretty healthy family life. Was it ever discussed amongst your family, your depression, your anxiety? Was there any treatment ever for, for that? <clears throat> 
No, it wasn't discussed. Um, and, you know, to their credit, I mean, they were, they were fairly progressive parents. Um, but no, it was never, it was never diagnosed, no treatment, no therapy or anything. And I, I was too young and too naive to know to ask for it too. Yeah, you probably didn't even recognize what was wrong with you. You just felt out of place, right? Absolutely out of place. And I write a little bit about this, but it, I'll just go back. But when I was eight years old, I literally remember having thoughts like, you know, like existential thoughts. Like, why am I here? Um, what's this all about? You know, thinking about in terms of life and existence and, you know, God and, and you know, it just, so looking back, I, I remember it, but as an eight-year-old, you know, how could I possibly have been thinking those things, you know? So I, I wasn't a deep thinker, you know, slightly, you know, above average in, in intelligence, very slightly, right? So it's not that, it was just, I, I don't know, I was somehow a little bit different and didn't, and didn't know whether to express that or not. Well, again, so after you after you dropped out of high school, um, you ran for the hills. You ran to the military. I think you spent about a total of ten years in the military, in the Air Force, and the Marine Corps combined. Um, could you tell me about that period of your life? Sure. So uh, my first older brother Brian sat me down when I was about seventeen, and he says, "You need to do something because." You know, at this point, I'm skipping school. I quit sports teams. I'm hanging out with the wrong crap. And he saw the writing on the wall. Super intelligent guy, my brother. And um, one of his best friends had just joined the Air Force. And he said, why don't you go talk to the Air Force recruiter? And then, Chris, like, my life changed completely. I mean, I went from small town Schenectady. I went through a training period in Florida. Um my first duty assignment was Hawaii. So here I am, this 18-year-old kid, you know, from this tiny little town. Um, everybody thinks that you're from New York, so that everybody thinks it's New York City, but it wasn't. I would live in like the farmlands, you know. Yeah. Uh, great shape, 18 years old, running wild. It was like the greatest experience to to really kick off what became somewhat of an interesting life and. Um, you know, new experiences. It was kind of cool. How was the depression? How was the anxiety during that period? Was it, did it subside because you were kind of living the life as you put it? Yeah, the depression subsided. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, at least there was then a lot of drinking in the military and booze was cheap. You could buy it on base and lots of parties and stuff. Um, so I think that you know, I just started ramping up to like 100 miles an hour. So the depression came down. But what didn't change was constantly thinking about things. And I couldn't quiet my mind. And I was old enough at that point to start realizing that this was an issue for me. Um, you know, outwardly, everything was great. But internally, something still just didn't seem right with me. Did it ever occur to you to try to seek out therapy or some kind of help? There was a chaplain, um, an Air Force chaplain that I spoke to uh, once at a, at a gathering, at a picnic or something. 
and we were talking a little bit and somehow he was able to pick up on something that was going on with me. And maybe he was identifying, you know, the racing mind that I always had. And, um, and so we talked a little bit and he said, you know, that's probably something that you should talk more about to people and someone that you trust. And I absorbed what he was saying to me, Chris, but I, I didn't really act on it. You know, again, I'm, I'm having fun. You know, my job in the Air Force was, was literally to, I was attached to an Army infantry unit and I was a Ford Air Controller, what's called a Romad. And I would be on the ground with a radio directing uh, pilots to drop bombs on target. So, you know, you can imagine. And, you know, I traveled to the Philippines and other countries to do exercises. So I never really took his advice. I just kept going, going, going. So after the Air Force, you made your way to the Marine Corps for nearly six years, I think. <clears throat> what were you doing in the Marine Corps? So after I left the Air Force, um, I moved back to New York and um, finished my undergraduate degree. I uh, had no idea what to do with my life. My oldest brother had just graduated from law school and he said, well, take the LSAT, right? Take the admissions test. And he said, the great thing about law school is you commit for three years and you don't have to think about life for three years because you're already locked into this thing. So I... I went kind of, I went in cold, took the LSAT, did okay on it. And, um, you know, so the next logical step was, all right, we'll apply to law schools. And, um, you know, I, I was accepted. And then my oldest brother then gave me this advice because as he graduated, he went as an associate lawyer to a law firm and he hated it. And, and you know, he said, um, don't do that because you're young and you, you, know, you want to do these different things. He said, how about the Marine Corps? And I'm thinking, Marine Corps? I'm thinking back to my Air Force days, thinking, wow, these guys are really, I mean, Air Force is cool, but it's not the Marine Corps. I mean, Marines are Marines, you know, first and last style. I was always intrigued by them. And I was scared to death of going in. But I, so enough, I, I went um, to an officer recruiter in Albany, New York, and, um, and said, okay. And he, he said, well, what do you want to do? I, you know, as a lawyer in the Marines, I said, well, I want to go through all the training every other officer has to go through, which the Army, Navy, and Air Force just puts you through a, a two-week shoot and salute school. Marine Corps make their officers, they don't care what you do, you have to go through the full training, which is the most tra amazing training in, in the world. Um, and he said, well, what do you want to do as a lawyer? And I said, I want to be in the courtroom. I want to do trial work. And he said, anything else? I said, no, I just want to do trial work. And he laughed. And he wasn't a lawyer. He was an infantry officer. Um, he goes, well, I can guarantee you'll get trial experience. So, um, so that's what I did. I, 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 that was before I started law school. So law school started in the fall. I went to officer candidate school in the summer in Quantico. And so when I went and started my first year of law school, I had a haircut like yours. Nice and short, clean cut. You know, now I look like a kind of like a savage. But back then, you know, and I started law school. And then in the summers, I could go to bases, Marine Corps bases. And even as a first and second year law student, they you would they put you in the courtroom. And so I was wow. just getting this trial experience. And then I'd go back 
uh, to, to law school for the next semester. And I had already had like administrative hearings. I second chaired a couple uh, courts marshal, marshal. It was just, you know, it was awesome. You know, it was really, really good. And you got tons of experience, which probably will help explain your next position after the Marine Corps. Uh, so when your military career came to an end, you went on to work with the U.S. Attorney's Office and then eventually on to become a federal prosecutor. Um, so for those that don't know, could you describe your work as a federal prosecutor? Sure. It's um, for many, many attorneys, it's a dream job. Um, it's it's an important job. It has a ton of responsibility. I mean, your job is to do justice is to, you know, it's to uh, pursue cases, um, you know, go after people who've committed, you know, serious crimes, not so serious crimes, but there's a lot of judgment involved too. Um, and we read about, you know, overreaching from prosecutors and there's still, there's always a lot of that. But I learned from really the best of the best. I worked at the Eastern District of Virginia U.S. Attorney's Office, which is called the Rocket Docket. And it's, it's comparable to like the Southern District of New York in terms of the types of cases and the, the prestige of the office. And here I am, just this young, you know, nearly brand new attorney, did a few years in the Marines, you know, a little bit of background, you know, and... It was my dream job. It was amazing. Um, but here's an interesting little fact, and it kind of ties in later in the story. You know, I went to Albany Law School in upstate New York. It's a wonderful, wonderful school. It's, uh, it's competitive, uh, great professors, great program. But it's not a Harvard. It's not Yale. It's not Duke. It's not um, Stanford, right? So most of the people hired by DOJ are from these pedigree schools. So I found myself feeling really, you know, it kind of fed into my natural insecurity that I had as a little boy, you know, so I felt like I had to work twice as hard. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what I did. You know, I really it was nose to the grindstone. What would take someone two hours maybe to write a motion in, for federal court? It would take me longer. I didn't want that. I wanted to be as good as, if not better, than than my coworkers. You know, a healthy competition. Um, and then, so I went from there. Um, and for your listeners, when I talk about the responsibility, it, it's not to it's not to increase the win loss column. It's not just to put people in prison. It's to judge the case. You know, assess what is uh, a fair charge to bring against them um, and then to win and, and to, to win at trial and, you know, to do justice though, is the bottom line. And I see a lot of offices that, that get away from that, but uh, certainly not the Eastern district of Virginia. I had a great coach named Gene Rossi. I won't get into it too much, but he's 30, he was 30 years with DOJ had more trials than any, uh, prosecutor in DOJ history, just a phenomenal man. Um, but it was, it was the best, man. I was so happy and I took so much pride in what I was doing and the work that I was putting in. It's awesome. Awesome. That's amazing. So you mentioned your, your, uh, officer candidate school training with the Marines. Uh, while you were taking part in that training, you suffered a pretty bad fall 
and you hurt your back quite badly. Um, so when you started working as a federal prosecutor, you said that you put on a bit of weight um, and the back pain returned and it was kind of a problem for you at that point. I think you were medicating with, you know, aspirin or, you know, basic stuff like that, but it just wasn't doing the trick. So eventually you found yourself um, visiting a doctor. And how did the doctor suggest you manage that pain? Well, so two things were going on. One, I did really hurt my back in the Marines and it was during the basic school, which is the six months of this unbelievable uh, training. It's very, very difficult. And you really get a taste for, you know, taking 270 officers, young lieutenant officers that really don't know anything and, you know, training them, moving them from A to B, the logistics of it. There's a lot of hurry up and wait, but the training is awesome. And it's, but a lot of it's gruesome. I fell down a cliff during night land navigation by myself out in the woods and you know, even though Schenectady is a small town, it's still a city. So I wasn't a country boy by any means. So navigating through the woods at night was a, it was a real challenge for me. During the day, I was great. But at night, you know, I used terrain association to navigate. And at night, you can't really see the terrain. Anyhow, so I fall down a cliff. I hear this crack in my back. I was disoriented. I was knocked out. I came to, I made it through that portion of the training, but here's the point, Chris, I couldn't, I couldn't go to anyone and say that I was injured because I'd either have to go back in training, start all over, uh, or go be put into a, an injured Lieutenant company and wait for my injuries to heal. Can't tell anybody. Once I went to DOJ, I put on the weight. Oh, so during the Marines, I treated it just as you said, Motrin, aspirin, heating pads, that kind of thing. And Grindon bared it, gutted it out. But once I went to DOJ, I'm traveling, hotels, eating, drinking, putting on weight, back injury comes back. I go to the doctor and great doctor, but kind of old school in his prescribing practices. And he suggests Lortab. Well, Lortab for most people is a, is a great medication. We have to be able to treat pain. Doctors have to be able to do that. Uh, but for a guy like me, Lortab is not a great medication because it's an opioid. And opioids are the no-feel, no-deal drug for somebody who's you know depressed, anxious, uh, um, feelings of insecurity, all those untreated things that I carried into my adulthood from my childhood, right? So Lortab was like that first drink when I was 13 or 14. It brought down all my insecurities. Now, here's the thing. It's kind of unusual because I was gaining a reputation as being pretty good at what I did, at least hardworking. And so my career path, the trajectory was kind of going like this. Well, more like this. And, but I still felt all these feelings of insecurity and, you know, when are they going to find out that I'm not as good as they think I am? All these feelings, when's that shoe going to drop? And opioids took that feeling away. So I kept going and kept going, self-medicating. Now you're saying Loratab, I think, is it better known as Percocet? Is that the same thing? So Loratab is hydrocodone, Percocet's, I guess, one step higher, which is oxycodone. 
And then the highest level is OxyContin, and we can talk about that in a minute. But, sure, um, we're, we're we're definitely going to get to that. Um, yeah, and I think I think I, mean, I think once really, yeah. Once once you started taking um, that medication, it got out of hand pretty fast. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So he would prescribe me, you know, a, a month's supply or two weeks supply, and that was okay for the first the first month. Uh, but then the second script would be gone in you know four or five days, um, and I really enjoyed them. I liked them. You know, I was I wouldn't say that I was hooked on them, but I really liked them. And so uh, he knew I was with I was a prosecutor with the Justice Department. And he liked that, you know, we would talk about my cases when I went to see him. Um, I'd make sure that my credentials and this little black thing with the badge were out where he could see him as time progressed, not in the beginning, but as time progressed, because what I was doing was I'd call him from, let's say, Los Angeles, and he was in DC. I'd say, Doc, I lost my script, or I left my script in a hotel. No problem, Andrew, I'll write you another one. So now I'm, take, now I'm taking, you know, hydrocodone, oxycodone. And I mean, I'm eating these things like chiclets, right? And all of a sudden, you know what else I developed? Oh, um, attention deficit disorder. So you know what? Well, doc, could you, could you prescribe me some Ritalin? I heard that really works well. And, you know, so that, and he's like, yeah, but I want you to make sure you be very careful with it. Of course, doc, look, I understand, you know, I, I prosecute drug cases, so I get these things. I mean, what a bunch of bullshit I was, I was feeding him, but I didn't want the supply to end, you know, and he would even prescribe Viagra a little bit, but we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> that's, that's a personal issue, I guess. Um, yeah, so I want to know, that's a silly joke. <laughs> um, I want to know, did you have any other addictions prior to that? And I think it's safe to say that you did develop an addiction to those pills, maybe not early on, but at some point you were hooked on them. Prior to that, was there any trouble with alcohol or other hard drugs? Or you said you were smoking pot and drinking, things like that. Was it, it was kind of intense, but do you think you were addicted to anything prior to that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, Cause I had stopped smoking pot. I definitely was drinking heavily, but I wouldn't say at that point I was, you know, clinically alcoholic. Um, and, uh, you know, so no cocaine, you know, no methamphetamine or anything like that. Um, but alcohol use definitely. Uh, and it, look, I hung out. I worked with, you know, DEA, FBI, ATF, ATF parties. DEA are no slouches either. You know, FBI is a little bit more buttoned up and careful. But, you know, so I was living a life of traveling the world um, you know, really going a hundred miles an hour. So alcohol was an issue. Uh, but if you ever wanted to discuss gateway stuff, I can go back to marijuana. Really? Well, for me, because marijuana and beer at such a young age made me feel better, you yeah. know? And so, um, like a lot of doctors and clinical types would disagree with the term addictive personality. I firmly believe that I do have that. So, Chris, what it did for me was it made me relax, feel better about myself, and not worry, you know? So, 
if that's good, if marijuana and, and weed is good, I mean, um, marijuana and a little bit of alcohol is good, then something else must be even a little bit better. And that's right where my mind went. And that's where, and it's not a gateway drug for everybody. You know, most of my friends smoke pot daily and they're extremely, we're fairly successful. Um, so for them, maybe not, but for me, I wanted to feel a little bit better. And so I inched up the scale to, to harder drugs. Well, um, you mentioned that you were traveling a lot and you uh, took a trip to Houston in the early 2000s. You were working on a, a major worldwide ecstasy case. Um, you were using uh, drugs very heavily at that point. You were drinking a lot. You were even using cocaine. Um, so after a major bust in that case, you arrived at the DEA office, I think, um, and there were all kinds of evidence um, laid out there. Uh, there were drugs, there were guns, there was cash, all kinds of stuff. Um, you found a Rolex watch, and for some reason, you decided to steal it. Can you describe what happened after you stole that watch? After I stole the watch, I'd come off a night of partying by myself. We had just taken down one of the largest cases in the country's history in terms of ecstasy, the number of countries involved, Israel, the Netherlands, Germany, United States, it was massive. We worked with Interpol, we worked with you know, agencies from all over the world. It was a big deal. And I, being a, a fairly young attorney still, you know, I led that. And, you know, I didn't lead it. The agents led it. They get the credit. I worked with some of the best, you know, brightest, hardworking DEA agents, task force, FBI was involved. They did it. I handled the legal side of things. We executed... I don't know, maybe 15 to 18 search warrants all at once that particular morning, as soon as the sun came up. Uh, well, when the sun came up and the agents are executing the search warrants and the arrests, I'm walking out of a club. And I had done cocaine, which was never my thing, but I had done some the night before, drank, you know, the pain kit pit pills, everything. Um, and so the next morning agent comes, picks me up at the hotel, brings me to the office, the office, as you described, just as you described it, that evidence bags everywhere, piles of cash, guns, everything, drugs, uh, jewelry. So I'm sitting there, Chris, and somebody puts a, a small styrofoam cup of black coffee in front of me. Don't remember who I'm still literally in a stupor. Um, I sip the coffee and something shiny is to my left on the table in an open evidence bag. It hadn't been sealed yet because it was still being inventoried and I look at it. And my best memory of this is I reach in, I look at it and I put it in my bag. I carried a, like a briefcase bag with me, you know, my work bag, right? Files, pads and stuff. I leave and um, I go to, to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is separate from the DEA office. And, you know, I was a Washington, D.C. lawyer. So I was coming in from Washington. You know, it's like the old thing. I'm, you know, I'm from Washington. I'm here to help. And, uh, you know, so I was kind of on their turf. 
So they gave me this little office and I get a call from the case agent, Keith Brown, one of the best agents you can imagine, investigators, just intuitive, you know, honest, um, just an amazing brain. And we had worked together for 11 months together. We were like brothers. Uh, we got a roving wiretap approved. We had all these things, all these small victories. So he calls me and he goes, how are you feeling? I'm saying, I said, well, I kind of hung over. He goes, yeah, I bet. And he goes, uh, we got a problem. And I said, what? And he said, we're missing evidence. And I said, well, what are you talking about? I mean, what, do, what do you mean? What, what are we missing? He said, we're missing a Rolex watch. And then there was silence on the phone. Now, as I said, he and I had become almost as close as brothers for 11 months. And that silence hit me in my gut. Something struck me that this wasn't right. You know, this I'd never felt something like this dealing with Keith. And he goes, well, we'll figure it out. So about 10 minutes later, he shows up in my office at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And Chris, this guy would carry, he wasn't a rogue cop. He was a great cop, okay? Great agent. But I mean, picture him, like he would carry, he was slightly overweight. He'd carry a pistol in his waistband, you know, instead of holstered up like a regular law enforcement officer. And he sits, sits across from me and he's got this big bag, like a, like a bag you'd wear, bring to the gym. You like to wear your workout clothes. Keith didn't carry bags, you know? He didn't even wear a, a, a sport coat or a tie, right? And I noticed the bag and something occurred to me. I, I don't know what occurred to me, but if I noticed it. And he said, Andrew, we got a real problem here. We're missing evidence. And I said, yeah, you told me over the phone. He goes, well, what are we going to do? And Chris, he looked at me and excuse me if I tear up a little bit, but he looked at me and when he said, what are we going to do? He was telling me, I think you took it. I think you have it. And I said, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to get everybody that was in that room that had any connection or, or closeness, proximity to that at watch, we're gonna question them and we're gonna polygraph them. And you know what he said to me? He goes, we're gonna polygraph everyone. And I said, everyone. And he said, including you? Whew. At that point, I said, Keith, what's going on here? He goes, Andrew, call your boss in Washington, D.C. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, Andrew, you need to call your boss. So he had already figured it out that it was me. As I said, he was his most intuitive man. And he knew that I was the only one in the room with that evidence because they had all left to go to a debriefing. And they don't bring lawyers in, in, to debriefings, right? <laughs> you know, for constitutional reasons. But they had to, you know, debrief the, the takedown and make sure everything was done properly. So I was the only one in the room when I took the watch. And so I reached down in my bag and I reached around and I start to pull out the first thing my hand grabs onto 
was a, a prescription bottle of Percocet. And I didn't pull it out enough for him to see it. I was behind my desk. And I reach back down, I feel around, and I pull out the Rolex watch. And he goes, call your boss. And I handed him the watch. It was, it was one of the most powerful moments. My life came crashing down at that point. Well, uh, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit on your story here. Um, that, was, that was a big turning point in your life. Um, so basically you were fired from your job. Um, luckily, um, they didn't bring charges against you. Um, you were able to work again as a lawyer and that's what you did. Your family, I think you moved back to your hometown or you moved back to, to Albany. You got work right. as a law, you got work as a lawyer there. Um, a pretty decent job, I think. Um, but you weren't able to get your prescriptions met there for your, your back pain or maybe your addiction at this point, whichever, whichever was more powerful. Um, and so you ran out of your, your medication. Um, so you, you contacted a friend and your friend said, well, I can get you some uh, Oxycontin, which is a much more powerful drug. Could you describe the, the difference quickly between what you were taking for the most part and Oxycontin? So when you run out of Percocet or Hydrocodone, um, and you don't take them for a few days, you feel kind of crappy. You feel like you have a cold, you're kind of, you know, uncomfortable, but manageable, right? So I call my friend and I said, can you get me some Percocet? Can you get me Lortab or Percocet? And he goes, no, I can't. Um, he said, but I can get Oxycontin. I'd heard of Oxycontin because as a prosecutor, Oxycontin had just come on the scene and in West Virginia, people were, were taking this new drug and dying, overdosing. And a uh, very offensive term, but they were calling it hillbilly heroin because there was a lot of Appalachia folks that were dying. So I was a little intrigued, you know? I'm like, well, but it's still a pill. But really, Chris, OxyContin is heroin in a pill form. So I remember, you know, making my way to his house I took a couple OxyContin and it's like Percocet times a hundred. So the feeling was like, wow, this is awesome. This is intense. And those feelings of insecurity and all that stuff, again, completely gone, completely gone. And so I'm taking this OxyContin and, you know, what I didn't realize was the addictive properties of it. I figured, you know, it's just like Percocet. Yeah, if I run out, that's fine. I'll feel crappy, but I'll get more. So I'm taking OxyContin, 80 milligram OxyContins, the big green ones. And um, my tolerance level is building quickly. So after a few days, I'm taking two or three of these at $40 a pop. But I'm making great money. You know, I was at one of the top firms. And... Um, so I'm like, but my tolerance grew. I'm taking more and more. And he was completely broke. The writing was on the wall. You know, I went in, he didn't have any furniture. He'd sold his, his PlayStation. I'm like, well, you know, I didn't really. So, but every time I went to him, I had to buy a couple for him, right? He wasn't going to tell me his source, right? His typical 
Um, and to, you know, he was in the compulsion stage of addiction, so I can't really blame him. However, to his credit, he accepts responsibility. So what happens? I'm sitting in my office one day. I hadn't had a, uh, an OxyContin for about a day and a half or two days. And I'm start, I start sweating. And my stomach tightens up. And all of a sudden, my skin starts crawling. And I get nauseous. I have a client in the waiting room. Okay. I'm about to go see a client. Um, so I call him quickly on my office phone. And I said, what the hell is going on? I feel awful. I said, I think I have the flu. Hey, by the way, were you able to get any more oxys? And he said, no, 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 you don't have the flu, bud. You're just going through withdrawals. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you're going through withdrawals. So I grabbed the waste paper basket and I throw up. Like it just came up suddenly on me. I didn't even know. And it kept happening and kept happening. And so I, I buzz my secretary and I say, can you tell the client we have to reschedule? I have to go, family emergency. So I leave my office, I, I call him first and I said, dude, what's going on? I said, I'm, I'm sick. He goes, yeah, these are withdrawals, man. You're going through, you're going through it right now. I'm like, well, why the, you know, F didn't you tell me? I mean, what is this? Get, get some more oxys. And he says, no, Chris, he says, no. He goes, uh, George got arrested. I said, George, he goes, yeah, the guy you get the oxys from. I said, well, call somebody else. And he goes, there's no one else. I'm like, what kind of fucking drug dealer are you? Pardon my language on your podcast. No problem. He says, he goes, I said, well, you're not sick. How come you're not sick? And he goes, um, he started, you know, and I've known this kid since kindergarten, my buddy. And he goes, uh, well, I don't know. I, I'm sure I am sick. I said, no, you're not. I can hear your voice. I said, so I'm thinking he must be holding back. He has more oxys just for himself. And he goes, I swear to God, I don't have any more oxys. Finally says, look, Andrew, just come over. Chris, I have never gotten from Albany, New York, disconnected to New York. It's about 25 minutes. I got there in like nine minutes. <laughs> I walk in, I have vomit on me. I'm sweating, I'm pale. I walk in and he looks me in the eye and he said, I never wanted to do this. I said, do what? And he points at the table, his kitchen table, and there's a little mirror on it. In the center of the mirror, there's a tiny little bit of, of tan powder. I'd never seen heroin before, other than as a prosecutor in, you know, in 50, 60, 70 kilo bricks. And he goes, I don't want to do this. Meaning he didn't want to show me heroin. But he goes, it's the only way you're going to feel better. I sniffed that little bit of heroin within five seconds. Sweating stopped, everything stopped. I was, I felt like a million dollars. That was my first introduction to heroin. Not a good introduction, um, ultimately. Um, no. you, you snorted it, uh, I guess the first um, little while, you, you quickly moved on to, to injecting it intravenously. Um, heroin took control of your life. Um, things really spiraled out of control very badly, fairly quickly, I do believe. You were spending hundreds of dollars a day on heroin. Well, how much heroin were you using and how much money were you spending? 
Um, at the height of it, so a, a bundle of heroin is 10 bags. It looks about the size of a postage stamp, a bag. And uh, a bundle is 10 of those. Um, and a bundle costs about $100. And so I was doing five to six bundles a day. Which I is mean, a, that, an that enormous doesn't sound... Amount. How much, uh, how much would an average uh, heroin user use? A bundle or a bag or how much? So probably like an average, I can't even say recreational user because there's no such thing when it comes to heroin, but mm -hmm. you know, um, maybe, maybe a bundle a day. You're using five to six times that. Yeah, sometimes a little bit more. And just spending hundreds of, hundreds of dollars and, uh, you know, it's a kind of a long story, but we'll kind of cut to the chase here. Eventually, the gig was up. Um, you were married. Uh, you had two children. Uh, your wife found out what was going on. Your boss at the law firm found out what was going on. You were fired from your job. Um, and you entered into a rehab facility, a pretty rough rehab facility, I think. Um, you were in yes. the rehab. You were in the rehab facility for a period of months, and for a while, it it, it took hold. You were able to get clean, um, but unfortunately, when you finished rehab, uh, you returned home, and there was some pretty bad news waiting for you. What was that? So I came home. Uh, let me say this first: it wasn't fun. It, it it the enjoyment of using is not fun. I mean, it's fun in the very beginning because it makes you feel great. But yeah. at the time when the wheels came off the bus, I was just using enough not to get sick. And it's hard. It wasn't fun. I wasn't living it up. You know, I was miserable. I was living a life of utter hell, just worrying, trying to make sure I had enough so I wouldn't get violently ill. The withdrawals are think the flu and plus mono plus pneumonia times 50 and I am not exaggerating mm. so I go through rehab I'm doing fairly well there probably wasn't enough of a uh, addressing my mental health issue which was depression anxiety fear so I get out I go to an outpatient clinic I'm going three or four nights a week I come home and the house was dark and the car was gone. Uh, my wife at the time had taken um, our two young sons and left. Um, and I'm not blaming her for that. You know, at the time I did, I blamed everybody, you know, but looking back, she, she was in survival mode and she had to protect herself and, the, and our children. Um, it was just, it was crushing. And you know, I, I, I'm not looking for sympathy. I created this. I'm responsible for everything that happened. You know, it's even with, you know, a horrifying addiction, the person with that addiction ultimately is still responsible to ask for help. Of course. Well, that, that was a devastating blow to you, especially to have um, your children taken away from you. Um, but there was kind of a, a nice period of time, I guess, um, following that. I mean, you managed to stay clean for a period of time. Um, I think at some point you found a, a new girlfriend uh, that you cared a lot about. Um, you were even working again, not 
uh, in your field of expertise, but you were working at a, I think a recycling plant or something like that. Yeah, I ran but, a scale. Trucks would come in. I'd have to weigh them. Work is work. Look, yeah, work man. is work. I would have to be alive. But the 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 having your kids taken away from you really messed with you a lot. I think, and it would anybody. I think. Added on top it of that, crushed. you. But added on top of that, your your um, ongoing mental health issues, as you said, your anxiety, your depression. Um, and on top of that, you were you were working, but it wasn't a high paying job. And so unfortunately, I think you weren't able to pay the child support even. So there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot going on in your head. And at some point, you just kind of broke. You started using again. Is that correct? I did. And and this is what led up to it. Um, my wife at the time would not cooperate with me whatsoever. Uh, she wouldn't allow me to speak to the children. Um, I had to see them. Uh, it was visited. Uh, any visitation had to be supervised by a stranger who had mm -hmm. a pet rat of all strange things. When I'm terrified of rats. Anyhow, the, the, the family court judge was uh, an awful judge. Um, and even being this far removed from it, and I'm objective and I accept responsibility, I have no problem saying that they did not cooperate. It's an awful system for a man and perhaps a woman as well to navigate the family court system if the judge is unfair. My depression went to the point where I wanted to kill myself. I couldn't live, Chris, with the idea of not being seeing my little boys. I couldn't. You know, and so the depression, my fear, my anger just culminated. And then one day I, I picked up again. I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. It was either use or kill myself, you know? And it was such a profound deep pain that I couldn't like I couldn't even imagine it could be that bad you know so I'm responsible for then picking up and using um and then things continued to to get worse yeah well your your habit your found again habit it got really bad really quick as things t tend to do um like that and right. you were back. You were back to your your previous levels of use, maybe even more. I don't know, um, but unfortunately, more. you didn't have yeah. you didn't have you didn't have the high paying job this time. You had a low paying job, right. um, so you were simply unable to pay for this expensive habit. So, I want to know: Was there a period of time where you were like, "Okay, how can I pay for this habit?" Did you have a series of ideas, or was it just one? I had one idea and I remember how it kind of came together. I had a friend that I grew up with, brilliant, brilliant kid named Matt. And uh, Matt had done some time for robbery. He had uh, earlier on, he had a, a, a cocaine addiction and he robbed some uh, grocery store. No, he grabbed, robbed some um, 7-Elevens or something. And he ended up doing state time, I think three and a half years. Brilliant man. I mean, could have done anything with his life. Um, 
but he had gotten out and uh, we had reconnected somehow. And I asked him, I said, Matt, do you think I could do jail time? And he said, yeah, you could. And then I asked him, it was more of like a philosophical question. And I said, why? Why do you think that? And he said, because you're not a mark. And he said, you're not someone that they're going to target. They're going to go for the low hanging fruit, the weak. So you would survive it. And I thought to myself, hmm. So I had this idea that, um, you know, I, I could survive jail. And one day I'm at my job weighing trucks on, at the scale. And I Googled um, the United States Sentencing Guidelines, which I used to have as a prosecutor, right? It's basically a manual um, set up by Congress, uh, initiated by um, Sentencing Commission. And so you look, up your, you look up the crime and then there's aggravating factors. Basically you come up with a numerical um, indicator and that's what the judge uses to sentence you to a range. So I looked up bank robbery um, and I had prosecuted bank robbery cases, but I had forgotten the guidelines. And so I read it and I'm like, huh. So continued to wait trucks, went home. My life continued to spiral. My only saving grace was the girl that I was with, Dawn. She doesn't know this, but she kept me alive, right? And so one day I'm driving to family court and I knew that I would test positive for opioids. And I knew that would be another setback, you know? Now I would only be able to see my kids once every three months or something. And all that kind of came in, it just flooded me. This, this massive feeling of despair and fear and not wanting to live. And so I'm driving north in um, New York. And instead of taking the exit to go to my family court hearing, I took the next couple exits up uh, the Lake George exit. Lake George is a, like a vacation town on this beautiful lake in near the Adir in, in the Adirondacks Park, I believe, or just short of it. But it's this awesome place. And I was on autopilot. I'll never forget. I'm driving. I'm holding the wheel. I pass the exit for family court. And I take the Lake George exit. And I went to the first bank I saw and I robbed it. <clears throat> Obviously, it sounds a bit insane to most people that that thought process of asking your friend, could I do prison time? even considering robbing a bank. The reason I asked you, were there other ideas in place? Most people would think of something lower level, like break into somebody's house and you know steal stuff out of their house and go sell it or whatever. Um, robbing a bank, it's, 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 you're crossing an incredibly uh, rare line. Um, it's a, it's a, an environment where you could potentially get killed instantly. Um, right. obviously, or even obviously, worse, someone else get killed. Yeah, sure. Um, and of course, there's there's the prison time that you you mentioned, but it doesn't seem that you were afraid. So here's the piece of it that I still don't fully understand. You know, I've been labeled by therapists and clinicians, you know, risk taking personality, um, a number of other things. 
and I know that about myself, you know, um, and I think it can be a strength and also a great weakness. Uh, I, I'm not an excitement junkie. Like I hate roller coasters, you know, so it wasn't that, but there's something part of my ontology, I believe caused me to choose bank robbery over any other thing. And I, I, I don't know. I was clearly out of my mind, you know? I mean, I was out of my mind. Um, but I'll never forget that day when I walked in that first bank. Well, let's hear, let's hear about that. So again, I'm supposed to go to family court. So I had a suit and tie on. And um, uh, there was a baseball cap in my little truck that I had um, given to me by my uh, AA sponsor. Great guy, unbelievable guy, Greg. Anyhow, I put my baseball cap on, of course, the Yankees cap. And I walk into the bank and I can't, I remember I couldn't feel my feet. Like I couldn't feel the steps that I was taking. It was almost like I float, I was floating in. And I went to this little table, you know, with the pens that are in the holders. And I took out um, like a deposit slip, a little piece of paper, and I wrote my demand note. Um, and it said something like, um, I have a gun, no alarms, give me hundreds, fifties, twenties, no alarms. And I got in line and uh, there's one guy ahead of me in line. He got called uh, up and then I got called up and I looked at the teller and, um, you know, she looked at me. How are you feeling? Swear, that? Sorry for interrupting, but I want to know, how were you, were you completely freaking out inside? Were you calm and cool? What was going on inside you at that time? Well, well, one thing was I wasn't high at all. So this wasn't under the influence. Certainly mm -hmm. I had it in my system mm -hmm. from days, you know, days prior. I was feeling this feeling of um, incredible intensity, this incredible energy, and this feeling of control, a feeling of control that I'd never had in the past year, you know, through family court, through, you know, the pending charges hanging over my head with DOJ for taking a watch. All of these things, I didn't have control over my life. The addiction, my depression, my mental health issues. But all of a sudden, I had control, you know? I didn't have control over the teller. It wasn't control over someone else. It was like an internal control. And that's what I was feeling. I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel nervousness or anxious i felt a certain calm so so then you handed the note to the teller and what happened next so i hand the note to the teller and she looks at the note looks up at me and then quickly looks away and she goes into her drawer and she took out the money in the drawer and um 
she said, um, like this, like this. And she was asking me if she was handing me the money properly. And it's something I'll never get out of my head. The fear that she felt was just too much, you know, and um, look, I wake up, I wake up about it, you know. And so, her. of course, that, that's a horrible Sorry. position. It's okay. Uh, it's a horrible position to put somebody in and anybody should feel bad about that, I would think. So you got the money. Um, how much did you get? And what happened next? I got a few thousand dollars, um, maybe uh, close to 3,000, um, got in my car uh, that I'd left running um, and drove to my guy's house and um, got heroin Yeah, and immediately um, used it. And immediately upon getting the cash in hand, you're kind of leaving the bank for the first time, you're driving away. You felt pretty good, right? You felt pretty exhilarated, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I guess that's when the that's when this sort of like like the rush happened. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh my god, I can't believe! Wow, this is nuts. And I just remember turning on the radio really, really loud. And I wasn't thinking about her. I wasn't thinking about having committed a crime. It was just like, holy crap. You know, and I'm tearing ass down the highway. Might have found a, a new high at that point, yeah? It was a new high. That's interesting you say that. Because, as you know, um, you know, I robbed more banks. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to talk about that right now. So the, uh, the first robbery, the cash, it didn't last all that long. I think when people imagine robbing a bank, they think you're just immediately rich, but... It's just a couple thousand dollars, maybe at best, usually, maybe more, I don't know, but you know, it's not a lifetime supply of money. And I think it was maybe a week later that you were broke again, you were out of heroin, you were, you were dope sick, going through withdrawals. Um, so you decided to rob a second bank using the same method as the first. Um, and it pretty much went about the same. Um, you got your, your cash from that robbery, and again, you immediately set out to, to get some more heroin, but uh, your regular dealer, I think, was in jail at that point. Um, so you had to just go on a random street corner to try to get some, some heroin. Um, so you rolled up to a dealer, <clears throat> told him what you wanted. Uh, he got into the car, and what happened next? So he gets in the car, and I'm in you know kind of a bad neighborhood. Um, and I uh, told him what I wanted, a bundle. And um, it's a small car. He's like, so we're really close to each other. And as I was reaching into my pocket to get my money out, um, I had kind of a stack of money because I committed a robbery a day or two before. And as I'm taking the money out, I feel cold steel on my temple and so he's he's pointing a gun at my head he's got his gun to my head and when people talk about your life flashing through your eyes it had never happened to me until that point and 
I know we're limited on time, but you can imagine all the, the visions of children and childhood and my parents and, you know, feelings of love and hate and fear and all these things have splashed. And the next thing I hear is a metal on metal clinking sound. And I knew from my time in the Marine Corps what had happened. His gun had jammed. He had pulled the trigger and the gun jammed. So it was his intention either, or maybe he accidentally pulled it, but I almost had my head blown off. And um, within, a, within a nanosecond, he grabs my money and starts to go. At the same time, I'm pushing the weapon away and I push, I get his shoulder. And so he's trying to get out. I'm trying to get him out. And then the next thing I do is I just gun it and tear it down the street. And um, I mean, talk about a drug deal gone wrong, right? By the grace been, of God, I mean, I'm Could have been today. worse, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's an, that's yeah. an incredible story. Um, so during your period of time um, robbing banks, and I think there was a couple of supermarkets in there as well, did you have any really close calls? Did you have any, uh, for you, any kind of scary experiences during that period? I did. You mean in, in relation to the robberies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was one... Um, there was a couple. One, um, I was in line behind a guy that I'm almost certain was a cop or a retired cop. And, um, you know, he wore kind of like a, like a, a vest that maybe like a fly fisherman would wear. You see a lot of like cops wear stuff like that to hide their weapon. But I was already in line and I was already committed to doing it. And that same feeling of calm and control, internal control came over me. So I didn't abort the mission, but I was almost certain. And in fact, I played it out in my mind that he would still be in the bank when the woman would hit, a, hit an alarm. And, um, and in fact, so it didn't happen, but I thought for sure I would be caught at that moment. I, ne I was never so sure. Uh, so it snapped me out of my calm and my feeling of control too. And then the panic set in. So, um, and oddly enough, when I get up to the, the teller, um, she's looking at the note, looking at me. And as she starts to turn to get into her drawer, this hand goes over here. And I'm pretty sure she hit the, the alarm. And so I grabbed the money while she's still putting money out. And I just grab it, some falls, and I run out. And that guy who I thought was a cop was walking down the sidewalk. I ran by him. We were the only two on the sidewalk. I took a quick left, got in my car, and, and, and drove off. But I was certain he was a cop. And that goes back to I endangered everybody's life. And at that point, you know, not, I don't know these people, but at that point, their life, in my eyes, looking back, were worth more than my life tenfold. I didn't want to live, man. You know, yeah. I just, at that point, I just didn't want, you know, the, the robberies were less about, we talk about running out of money. 
they were less about not getting sick and much more about anger, mm-hmm. you know? And it took me some, some quality time in therapy um, to learn that that was really about anger, you know? And not anger at others. I had plenty of that, Chris. I blamed everybody, you know? The family court judge, my ex-wife, whoever. One of my brothers was a real jerk, I thought, to me during the time. Man, it's, we blame other people when we're in the compulsion of addiction. But really, the anger was at me. I, I was angry at myself, yeah. you know, for not getting the help I needed. I know it sounds so cliche, but people have to ask for help. And when I speak, I speak nationally to different groups. That's what I talk about. You know, it seems so easy. And there's more to it than that. And I can walk, I walk people through every day in my, in my current job in, in hobbies that I do to do just that. And I know I got off uh, the, the track there a little bit, but I mean, that's important stuff. Absolutely. Um, well, so in the end, I think you committed a total of eight robberies. Um, and eventually, obviously at this point you were caught. Um, I think that they identified your truck and you were chased down by police cars and helicopters and taken at gunpoint. Um, you were sentenced to five and a half years uh, in prison for your eight robberies. Um, to me, that seems a little bit light for so many offenses. Um, you, of course, are a very experienced lawyer. Uh, so were you at all involved in your own defense? And was the sentence you received kind of standard for your crimes, do you think? Well, and I don't mean to be flippant, but the sentence was exactly what I calculated when I looked up the, the guidelines, except I made one mistake. And listen, I don't want to come off, you know, as cocky or this is like not important stuff or it's not serious what I did. I live with the guilt and the shame of what I did daily. You know, I'm not proud of any of this, you know, but I had to figure out a way to turn this around to possibly, possibly, and I don't even know if I do, but help others, you know, to bring down the stigma. And we'll talk about it in a second, but bring down that stigma but I was so angry at myself, man, that, um, you know, it had so much more to do about mental health and my, those challenges for me than it did about addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, obviously your time in prison couldn't have been easy for you, um, despite you uh, claiming to be somebody who could do prison time. Um, but it probably ultimately saved your life in the end. Um, briefly describe that, that period of time, uh, before you were released. I'm writing my book about it right now, a second Mm -hmm. book right now about it. Mm -hmm. And and it's the most dysfunctional system that we have in this country Mm -hmm. is our prison system. If you look at the mass incarceration of minorities, and I'm not here to be political, the facts are the facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, mandatory sentencing, draconian drug laws and their sentencing. Prisons are filled with poor black men and Hispanic men. Okay. So I go to prison and, um, you know, thank God Almighty that uh, two things. One, I have a law degree. And I can help people with their legal cases. 
I actually got a job as the law clerk in the prison. So, and the, and the second thing that I'm grateful for is my Marine Corps training. Now, by no means am I a badass or a fighter or an MMA guy. You know, I'm terrified mm-hmm. of MMA guys. I don't know about you, but they just, yeah. uh, I mean, they're really amazing. But, but I was able to handle myself. And I, I, I tell the story occasionally. I got in six fights in my prison career, you know, and um, I was uh, four. My record was four, three. Um, no, not four, three. It was uh, four, two and one. I know that adds <laughs> up to, to uh, seven, but we don't need to talk about it. But anyway, so I go in. Here's the biggest thing. I'm a former prosecutor with the Justice Department. I'm in federal prison. Uh Everybody in federal prison was prosecuted by a DOJ lawyer. If they found that out, I could be killed. As simple as that. And killing in certain um, communities, I don't want to say cultures, but certain communities, um, and this isn't race, it's not black, white, or whatever. You know, it could be the, you know, organizations, killing in certain organizations, okay? Because I don't want to sit here and talk about gangs for obvious reasons. Isn't a big deal, Yeah. you know? And to kill me, that could be their initiation into an organization, you know? Um, or they could just be insane, you know? Or they could blame me for their ridiculously long sentence for marijuana or, you know, a nonviolent offense. So anyhow, I always had that to worry about because what people would do r- routinely is say, okay, I want to find out who this guy, John Smith is. Uh, there's ways for them to find out who he is. They can get newspaper articles sent in. Um, and, you know, so every now and then you'll find out so-and-so was a cop, you know, you don't want to be law enforcement in prison. So that never happened to me, you know, Um, But I was prepared for it if it did happen. And I had to stand up for myself no matter what. Um, And everybody in prison does. The one thing my buddy Matt told me when I asked him if I could do time, he goes, oh, someone's going to check you. Someone's going to step to you. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you got to fight. He said, even if you get your ass kicked, it doesn't matter. You have to fight. You know, and that's how it actually happened for me. But um, I realized there's a possibility. It gave me a whole new understanding of, of prison and poverty and, um, you know, mass incarceration and the injustice that we're doing to people. The other point I'll make is um, in terms of mental health and addiction, the percentages of people in the Federal Bureau of Prisons that have either one or both of those issues in their lives is unbelievable. They mm-hmm. say, you know, maybe 60% in that. No, 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 I, I'm. This is anecdotal because I didn't do a, a, an actual study. But Chris, we're talking 80 to 90%. Sure. Particularly mental health. Absolutely. Trauma, PTSD from childhood. And, and so it gave me a new perspective. It also gave me an opportunity uh, to help people you know, not, not everybody, you know, but with habeas corpus petitions, 
um, direct appeals, uh, you know, complaints against the prison uh, warden and BOP in general. And that was the thing, uh, one of the key points of how I was able to persevere and get through that. It was not easy. It's not club fed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to move on to the next chapter of your life after you after you got out of prison, after you survived prison, I guess. Um, and this is what I find so inspirational about your story. We've talked about a lot of really horrible things in your life. Um, but once you got out of prison, you really managed to turn your life around um, clean and sober, as far as I know, uh, for a long time. Um, and you're doing great work. Could you talk a bit about what you're doing now? So when I was in prison, one of my um, uh, things was to journal, and I recommend journaling for anybody. And people say, well, what do you write about? Write about anything. Put a pen to paper and just start writing. It gets it from here, somewhere else. <clears throat> so I journaled, and after about, you know, towards the end of my time, I had a stack of those um, black and white speckled composition books you use when you're kids. And uh, I had a stack of those full of my thoughts, you know, stories, um, memories, everything. And it really helped me from a mental health standpoint. So I get out and I go, um, I didn't know what to do. You know, I had a, a, a friend named Jim Walsh before I went in to prison. And towards the end of my time, I wrote to him and I said, can you, can you get me a job as your paralegal? Uh, I'll carry your briefcase. You know, he's a wonderful, wonderful attorney, a wonderful man. And um, it was important for me to tell the prison, look, I have something set up when I leave. You know, it helps like the halfway house process after prison and all these things. So that's what I started to do. I mean, he really threw me a lifeline. And um, so I started to rebuild, rebuild, and I started doing legal work for other attorneys. I, I clearly wasn't licensed, but I had a skill set that they could use. So my one uh, friend, another excellent lawyer, for better or for worse, all my friends are lawyers. You know, it's, it's not, <laughs> I don't know whether that's good or bad, but Brian picks up one of my um, composition books and he's kind of flipping through it and he reads one of us he goes oh my god that's awful and so he keeps reading he goes and he starts laughing he goes that's hilarious and he said why don't you write a book and i'm like huh okay i can't write a book you know it's like smart people write books and um so anyhow i started to boil it down and my partner dawn helped me and um, my sister, who's passed away a couple of years ago, she really drove me. She was an English major, one of the brightest people I've ever known. And she's like, keep going, send me another chapter. She lived in Texas, I lived in New York. And so it started to form into something cohesive. And um, it's a series of stories. It's not about bank robberies, right? I think there's one chapter that describes, I think my first robbery, but it's not about that. Um, well, let me let me it's mention really the name. About, <clears throat> let me mention the name. Yeah. You're talking about your memoir called "Sheer Madness: From Federal Prosecutor to Federal Prisoner." Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so I wrote it, and um, I probably sent out like a hundred query letters to prospective literary agents, and 
you know, you know when they say when you send us the query letter with the sample chapter, send a, a self-addressed envelope so we can send you back the rejection. And so it's sure enough, you know, it's like law school or med school. You get a lot of rejections. You got to keep trying. And then finally, a friend said, well, why don't you um, use a platform called Create Space? You have a lot of control over it. It's you keep profits, whatever. Um, and so it became a book. And I was happy. You know, it was really a journaling exercise. It turned into a book. Um, and so all of a sudden, I, I did a book signing, and somebody from the local press was there, and they reached out to me. And so it started to turn into uh, a platform for me to speak, and I love to speak. And um, it gave me a platform to try to reach people a little bit and say, you know what, you can do this. Look how crappy things were for me, you know, and certainly things aren't perfect but you can do this, you know, and, and kind of here's how, but that's not the, you know, it's not a self-help book. It's just my story. There's no narrative arc to it. So don't look for one. Um, so I, well, I think, I think that, and, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think that your story is kind of inspiring to a lot of people because I mean, honestly, you don't hit bottom much worse than, than your story. You know, not only were you wildly addicted to, to drugs, especially heroin, you were robbing banks, you were endangering people, you were incredibly mentally unhealthy. I mean, you were just living at the bottom and lucky for you, you got yourself into prison and you, you kind of figured some things out. Um, well, you're doing, you're doing great work, Andrew. It's, it's really inspiring. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion for me. Um, thanks for sharing your story and thank you for joining me today on Meet My Inspiration. Chris, it's been an incredible pleasure. Can I say one last message? Yes, please. To listeners, you can do this. If you're struggling with mental health, addiction, seek out help, seek out treatment. I work for a place and this is not a plug. I just happened to find a treatment place called uh, Transformations Treatment Center. Find quality treatment. There's a lot of crappy treatment out there. Find quality treatment and get the help. You can do this. And I, I sound like that guy on the treadmill, but you really can. You know, there's hope. You got to put in the work, but there's hope and just keep trying and do not give up. I mean that. That's an excellent message. From my Thank heart. Sharing that. Okay. Andrew, Absolutely. thanks again. Chris, this has been you. great. My pleasure. Thanks to Andrew for such an honest and compelling discussion. Andrew's memoir, Sheer Madness, From Federal Prosecutor to Federal Prisoner, can be found on Amazon using the link below. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Meet My Inspiration, and I hope we've been able to inspire you too, even if just a little. Sometimes that's all it takes to make great things happen. <laughs>